0: Turn in your Bible, if you would, to 1 Samuel 31. Um, I've been told that that was either a horrible children's message or a horrible Italian accent or something. Um, no, so when I, it's kind of a, a, my best attempt at Boston. Uh, I'm very thankful to be home. Uh, you can probably hear my voice. I got kind of yucky sick while being an instructor at a preaching workshop this past week, which was no fun at all. Um, I had the help to carry through, but um, yeah, so you can hear my voice. Um, But when we showed up the first morning after the pre-workshop on Wednesday to go to the parking garage we were assigned, um, we checked in and the guy came out to, to tell us where to go and he said, park your car up on the third floor. And I looked at the other guy, I was like, this was worth the price of admission right here. <laughs> like, this is fantastic. I mean, literally, those were my first Boston words I heard, is pak yaka. I mean, like, this is, yeah. Um, so anyway, I've got good energy, though I've been a little bit under the weather, and I'm so thankful to be back, and every time I travel, as I told you in an email, I love being here more with you all. I'm so thankful for that. Um, let me say a few things, kind of introduction, uh, not about the text, but just some things for our church where we're at. Um, I want to thank, we got about six weeks worth of volunteer leading musicians. Um, I think most of you know this, but last Lord's Day was the last Sunday with Clinton Ross as our music director. And so, uh, we've got about six weeks, including this Sunday where we just have volunteer musicians leading the way. So I want to thank all the musicians involved in doing that. Um, and I think I'd be very remiss to not tell how, how nice it is to see you. Sincerely, brother. Um... Even without your trumpet, it's good to see you. Um, and we love you and your wife, and we miss her, and we pray for her. Um, so that's one thing. I want to thank God for his provision of volunteer musicians. But we are bringing in a new full-time pastoral intern, and Troy and Samantha Cash move to Johnson City tomorrow. And uh, some of you, this is an old friend and family coming back. Troy was a musician with us, but he's in seminary, and so he's a full-time pastoral intern. And he and his wife, Samantha, have two boys, Avery and Thomas and just look forward to welcoming them. The month of June is going to be a transition month for Troy, so he's not going to be doing major leadership, but for the volunteer musicians who are kind of carrying some of the weight, he'll enter in and start to form relationships more, uh, meet folks he doesn't know already. uh, But just want to let you know that's a real blessing to have his gifts and have um, him be kind of on staff with us, so just see that. Um, This is the last Sunday I'll preach from 1 Samuel 31 in a bit. Next Sunday, I'm going to preach from Exodus chapter 24, and it's a text I was asked to preach this past week in Rhode Island, and I think it's super apropos for just finishing our First Samuel series and Exodus 24. I want to encourage you to read it. It's about the law of God being given, the covenant with his people, his glory showing up on Mount Sinai, and it will help us understand why God was so serious in the book of 1 Samuel to say, you should look for no other leader or king than me. The amount of glory God's people had seen of him exodusing them out of slavery in Egypt, the, the, the clarity of His law that He'd given, I think it's going to help us kind of wrap up our first Samuel series. And say, "Of course there was no excuse to look around them at the nations and say, "We want to be like the nations." No excuse. They had just seen him show His glory to Pharaoh. Of course, we know the era of the judges was between First Samuel and the Exodus, but it's the same God. And so we're going to look at that next, next week. And then after next Sunday, I'll be taking a long uh, RV trip with my family. Um, and so then AJ and Bill will start our First John series, and I'll be back for almost the whole of the summer. So um, just eager for the, the weeks to come, uh, both some time with my family, but also uh, for us to transition to First John together and see God grow us over the summer months. Would you stand with me? Let's read 1 Samuel 31 together. This is God's Word. This is the end of this book. Very important chapter, as I hope we'll see. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together." And when the men of Israel who were on the side of the valley uh, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the, the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news folks, like to carry the gospel. This is the gospel in Philistia. Just think about it. This is the good, the good news they want to herald. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there and they took their bones and bur- and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted 7 days this is the word of god father help us we pray show us christ in this help us to grow not just from our experience of your work in our hearts by your spirit through this text, but this whole book, these nine, ten months in it, would you help us to understand that there's no other king but you? And that this book points us in a forecasting way to your anointed, to our Lord Christ, and we ask you to help us to be bolstered in faith today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So... Years ago when we didn't have any older kids and the the kids we did have were younger, Corey and I would, you know, there'd be times in which we'd walk into a room and we'd say, you got to clean this up. Like not just if you, I mean, it's not just it's a mess, but like somebody's going to get hurt in here. Like either we're going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt, or the toy you care so much about that you refuse to clean up, it's going to break. When somebody gets hurt, usually a parent trying to do bedtime, right? Or a toy that is beloved breaks. It's pretty easy as a parent to look at your child and say, I told you so, right? I mean, I told you so. You can cry, but let's go put it in the trash. I told you so. When I was learning to drive, my dad had the same rule I now have with my teenagers, which is, son, you need to drive careful, follow the law, if you get a ticket, you're blessed to be in a home where neither of your parents have that many tickets or accidents, so therefore we have a decent premium insurance every month. If you get a ticket, you will not only pay for the ticket, you will pay for our increase in insurance for the rest of the year. I was going, I think, only 12 miles over the speed limit. I was only 16, but I got my first ticket. Had to pay my ticket, and my dad was waiting for his next statement to come in the mail, and he sat down with me, and what do you think he told me? I told you so, I told you this was the consequence. As you know, our family, some of us like to run, some of us run when we have to, some of us mock those who are running, but my son Nate's a runner with me. A few years ago, when he was not the runner he is now, we ran a half marathon together. And I said, Nate, there's no way you can run this half marathon. You've not been training. I don't care if you're doing middle school cross country. You've not gotten past a certain amount of mileage. It's not going to work well for you. And I remember telling him, you haven't even run eight miles straight yet. To which he went to the treadmill, ran eight miles, and said, Dad, I just ran eight miles. I said, okay, fine. I'll register you for the half marathon. But I don't think that you have trained for this, and it's not going to go well for you. So we're down with Corey's parents running a half marathon. I finished mine. It was during the COVID time, so they staggered the start. So I started way earlier based on time, preparation, and such. So I'm back. I've already showered, and I get a phone call from Nate. Mile 10? Something like that, brother? I told him I was going to tell the story. He said, Dad, can you come pick me up? And I said, are you hurt? No, sir. Did you step in a hole? No, sir. Where are you? Mile 10. Can you pick me up? nope what do i tell him on the phone i told you so that'll never happen again and i'll never catch you again son and that's a different story but it happened i told you so is essentially looking at somebody and saying i i I gave you forewarning you didn't listen it happened i was right you should have listened that's essentially what I told you so is. And so maybe I could be a little bit more ripe with my examples. For me as a father, doesn't the scripture say, fathers, don't be harsh with your children. I've had times where my wife has looked at me and said, Jim, you need to back off. You're going to push them away. And if they then don't want to sit with their father and discuss, my wife, can, Corey, can say to me, I told you so. Maybe you have a friend or a coworker, and you have to look at them and you say, "I agree with the merits of what you're saying, but if you continue to speak this way to those people, or you continue to speak about those people to other people, I agree with you, but if you continue in this way, nobody's going to trust you. Nobody's going to want to be around you. To which when that person is lonely and isolated, then what do we at some level have to say? Okay? I I told you so. There's a whole bunch of examples you might even have. I told you so means there was a righteous way, there was a consequence to unrighteousness, and those who don't listen self-discover. Chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is the great I told you so. One of the great I told you so's of the whole Old Testament. We come to chapter 31, Saul dies on Mount Gilboa with his sons, and we just read, and all his men, and God is in heaven saying, I told you so. And so let's go back. I want to walk through a bunch of stuff today. In fact, if you've not been walking through the series with us, not a bad Sunday to be here because we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're not just going to look at chapter 31. We're going to go way back. And so let's go back into Old Testament history. In the book of Joshua, after the exodus... God leads his people into a promised land. He says he's going to do so. Of course, we know they disobeyed and they have to wander the wilderness, but consider what is said through Joshua. Joshua chapter 23. Joshua says, The Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. This is Joshua 23 verse 9 for those of you that write things down. As for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man among you puts to flight a thousand because it's the Lord who fights for you just as he promised he would. Be very careful then to love the Lord your God. If you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and you make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from among you. They will be a snare and a trap, a whip on your sides, a thorn in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God is giving to you. This is way back in the book of Joshua. God says to his people, I'm going to lead you into a great place. You need to obey me and drive out the peoples that are there. All we have to do is turn to the first chapter in the book of Judges, and guess what we see? Tribe after tribe after tribe. Starting in Judges chapter 1, verse 27, they did not drive out the Canaanites. Anybody know what the Philistines are? Canaanites. And so now we come to this book and have we not seen the Philistines have been a snare and a trap and a whip on the sides and thorns in the eyes of the Israelites. They have remained their great enemy. So God could say to his people, I told you so. But the people didn't notice or care. In fact, they looked around at the Canaanites that lived among them and they said, you know what? It looks kind of good to do things their way. We want you to give us kings that rule us the way their leaders rule them. And so we know that Samuel's the last great judge. This is where our book started. He is the one by which God says, go ahead and give them the king that they're asking for. But you need to warn them, Samuel, of the way this king will, will function. And so if you remember in our series, we, back in chapter eight was a critical chapter. Samuel gathers the people and says, you can have a king. But that king is going to take and take and take and take and take, and take from you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters. He's going to take your lands. He's going to take from you. And in the end, he's going to leave you empty. It's not going to go the way you think. And then you're going to cry out to the Lord because of your king. So Samuel obeys. He warns the people. That's what we saw in chapter 8. Then we fast forward in chapter 9, Saul is chosen as king. In chapter 10, Saul is anointed. In chapter 11, the first story we saw of Saul, he actually does some pretty good kingly things. He rescues the people of Jabesh-Gilead who are being attacked. The reason I'm going to mention that today is because notice who takes him off the wall of the pagan temple in chapter 31. The people of Jabesh-Gilead. See, see, they remember when he was was going to be a good king. We put our hope in him. He was going to be the deliverer. And so if there's one merciful thing in all of chapter 31, it's the people of Jabesh-Gilead risk their lives at night to go into Philistia to take his body off of the wall. So the one time we see Saul act like a king is right away in chapter 11, but then Samuel formally installs Saul as king in chapter 12, and he warns them again, you need to fear the Lord and obey only him, not just you, but also the king you chose. And if you will not obey, you need to know the hand of the Lord is going to be against you and your king. And then Samuel looks at them and says, you need to stand still and realize how serious God is which this is foreboding to next week when we go to Exodus 24. Stand still. Don't let anybody come touch this mountain. You need to see how serious your God of rescue is. And so what happens in 1 Samuel 12? Boom! Thunderstorm. The sky lets loose. And we read in 1 Samuel 12 that the people were terrified. And so they say to Samuel in verse 19 of chapter 12, Pray for the servants of the Lord that we will not die. We know it was a sin to ask for ourselves a king. We understand it was evil. And Samuel says to them, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Yes, you have done this evil. You should not have asked for a king. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord your king with all your heart. And do not turn aside to empty things that will not profit or deliver you, and your God will be merciful. So they get one more warning in chapter 12. And now we come to chapter 31. We've seen the whole story unfold. Samuel him in chapter 12 said, this king's going to leave you empty if you reject the Lord. And is this not a chapter of emptiness? Everything is taken, if you notice what we read. Saul dies, sons die, his men die. And from the other hills, those who aren't fighting, look and see everybody flee. And they run from their homes and cities. And the Philistines take them back. They lose everything. The the book ends with emptiness in their world. So we could say that God is saying to the people, I told you so. But it's not just for the people that God's saying, I told you so. He's saying this to Saul. Remember in chapter 15, Saul refused to obey the Lord's command. God said, I want you to go devote to destruction the Amalekites. Remember the Amalekites, they're the ones that came across the tail end of the train outside of the Exodus, and they destroyed the weakest of the Israelites fleeing Pharaoh. They they just, they they wounded, they murdered, they they, they attacked the weakest of Israel. So God said, this is a statute, I'll never forget what Amalek did to my people. So Saul as king is told by God, go destroy the Amalekites, because God's a God of justice. And as we know, Saul did not obey. He did not devote them to destruction. He spared their king. He kept their flocks. And maybe you recall that powerful scene where Saul is standing there looking at Samuel going, hey, boss, like I did exactly what God said to do. And Samuel looks at him and says, do I hear sheep? Because I think I hear sheep. And Saul says, oh, the sheep. Yeah, the people wanted the sheep because we were going to do a worship service. They're, They're for sacrifices. And Samuel says to Saul, Essentially, I'll just quote it, verse 22 chapter 15. Do you think the Lord has as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as he does in obeying his voice? To obey, Saul, is better than to sacrifice. And because you've rejected the Lord, he also now has rejected you as being king. And so starting in chapter 50, remember Samuel turns and walks away. Saul reaches out and grabs the robe. The robe tears and Samuel turns and says, just the way you tore my robe, the kingdom's been torn from you. And now here we are in chapter 31 and we would say it is finished. The king dies and so do his people who followed him. God is saying, I told you so. Now Saul knew it was coming, didn't he? What is it, three weeks ago now we looked at chapter 28 where Saul, he can't hear a word from the Lord and the Philistines are going to attack him and he's anxious. And so he goes to a witch and he asks her to conjure up from the dead Samuel. It's a crazy scene. And Samuel comes, it's a vision of some kind and what does Samuel say to him? Basically, I told you so. I told you so. The reason God doesn't respond to you is because he's already turned from you because you rejected him. This chapter is the deep low of the rejection of God. It's the divine, I told you so. I mean, just the depth of the chapter, some details here. The word flee is used three times because the people, everybody starts to flee. The word fall is used four times. To die is four times. And the, the, the low is verse six. The death of the king and his beloved sons. And notice with me, who's the first reported casualty? Jonathan. That's not Saul. It's Jonathan. Jonathan was the first to recognize that David was the Lord's Christ. Jonathan, in chapter 18, had already basically taken off of his robe and said, I don't have to be the next king. My loyalty is to you because you're God's man. So Jonathan had already sacrificed his own kingdom to follow David. He'd already asked David if he could play an expected role in his kingdom to come. And he already said to David, if that doesn't happen, would you please be merciful to my family forever? Jonathan had that kind of faith, and he was that loyal to David. And then we see here, here's a tragedy. Jonathan's the first casualty that's not Saul, recorded in this text. Is God not a God of generational consequence? Doesn't he say that? Exodus 20 I'll visit the iniquity of fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. I can be merciful and change the soul onto a thousandth generation, but there are consequences to sin. Have we not seen the generational consequences already? Does not the book start with Eli and his sons dying? If Saul would have just, done what he was supposed to and read the law of God every day of his life and had written it down and sought to memorize it like he was commanded in Deuteronomy 17, maybe he would know that if he continued headlong against the Lord, his own children were going to be wrapped up in the consequences of his sin. And so parents in the room, this is for real. Sometimes we're given the mercy of already seeing the consequence of our sin and our own children's struggles. I have, maybe you have, This is a sad scene. We know that Saul is wounded badly by archers. He falls on his own sword. He dies utterly alone. One commentator says, At the heart of this tragedy, what we do not hear Saul say is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, I've already mentioned it, but in verse 7, they're up on Mount Gilboa, so all we know is that the Israelites who are not fighting can see this from a distance. And so they look and they see the battle turning. They see the destruction and they run from their houses. And it's so simply stated. They abandon the cities God had given to them. I mentioned it last week, but do you remember the words of Moses when God's people go into the promised land? And he says to them that when you get there, And you get to live in good cities you didn't build. And you get to have houses you didn't build. And you get to reap the benefits of vineyards and olive groves that you didn't plant. You need to be very careful lest you forget the Lord. Because he's given it to you by grace. But if you forget the Lord, what does God say that he does to those who turn from him? He rejects those who reject him. And that's what happens here. They run from the cities. What he had given them, they don't have it anymore. This is a deep low, this chapter. I mean, one way I could say it is it's a total reversal of the good. That's what we must see. The houses, the good things, the wells, the vineyards, gone. Can you imagine in your life right now what you would say is the Lord's provision? we have to say it's the Lord's provision because every good gifts from Him. But I want you to imagine a total reversal of what you call your own. Gone. That's what is happening the, the low is even deeper. It's even darker. Let me show you where. In verse 9, we read that they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. You see that in the ESV? In the original Hebrew, the word messengers is not in the text. There's no, they just, it's just, they sent throughout the land to share the good news. And then we read in verse 10, it wasn't, I don't think it's messengers they sent throughout the land. What did they send throughout the land? The dismembered bodies of Saul and his sons. Their armor. And so now we read in verse 10 that Saul's body and that of his sons, headless corpses, and excuse the graphicness, but they're, they're spiked to the walls of Beth Shan, which is the temple of Ashtaroth, the female deity of the Philistines, this pagan god who was worshipped with Dagon. Now, when I say the name Dagon, does that bring up any memory? Do you remember chapter 5? Remember in chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant was captured and Phineas' wife, she, she has a baby and as the news is given that the Ark is captured, she passes away. Eli falls over and dies, but she has a baby and she names her baby Ichabod. And in Hebrew, the word Ichabod means, where is the glory or the glory has gone? And then the next scene is in chapter 5. The Ark of the Covenant goes and is parked inside Dagon's temple. And what do we see? Is the glory gone? No way. Because it's a funny scene, right? Every morning they come and Dagon, their idol, has fallen over. And they set Dagon back up. Got to get him right. And then the next morning they come in and not only has Dagon fallen over, but Dagon is headless and handless. The glory of God broke out inside of a pagan temple, and now you have the disqualified, rejected people's king of Israel is on display inside of the pagan temples of his enemies. Do you see the reversal? Actually, it's even more stark than that. It says his body was against the wall of Astaroth temple called Beth does anybody know where his head went excuse the graphicness first chronicles chapter 10 verse 10 let me just read it to you and they put his armor in the temple of their gods but they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon that's crazy reversal the same temple where god decapitated the head of the idol is now the temple that is displaying the head of Saul. This is a very deep low of reversal. God is in heaven saying, I told you so. Now, I want to start to apply this. Um, Hope to do it faithfully. So let me just do it in form of a question. Do you ever wonder... If that is how God looks at you, that you have struggled to obey His holy law, you and I have struggled to honor Him with our minds and our bodies and our time. We know what our struggles can be. Lust, self-righteousness, unkindness, anger, impatience, control, fear of man. We might even hate those sins and lament them, but we, we tend to go back to them. And the progress is slow. There might be some progress, but we're shocked at the lows we'll go to. And then has it ever happened to you that something happens in your life, some form of circumstantial thing that is not good? Maybe it's a relationship crisis. Maybe it's a financial strain. I'd say in a church as a pastor, to me, it's sometimes it's a series of things. I'm like, oh my gosh, how is this all happening at once? Maybe it's the onslaught of an addictive sin that you thought you had power over and it starts to oppress you again and you start to wonder, oh my gosh, is this this God in heaven saying, I told you so, and is he going to take me down? I don't know about for Bill as a pastor for many more years than I've been, but I've had many people who profess faith in the gospel, but their functional theology is, I'm expecting any minute, that's what the Lord's gonna do to me because I'm not as holy as I should be. So here's the question Is that where this book is supposed to leave us? Afraid that what happened to Saul might happen to us. God's brutal final, I told you so, the deep low of his final rejection. Is that where this book is supposed to lead us? I don't want you to even think about it for any longer. Absolutely not. This book is not about God's rejection of his own people. Not a people who desperately need him to be the righteous king that he tells us from the beginning that he is. The merciful king that we cry out to. No, the book of First Samuel is ultimately about there being no other king of God's people who repent and turn to him than the king of reversal. But it is true, reversal goes both ways. Those who reject God are on display at the end of this book. But the whole narrative is about something wholly different, isn't it? It's about God's faithfulness to bring His King, who's going to be the one by which those who repent and turn to Him are rescued from our sin, are rescued from the world around us. First Samuel, from beginning to end, doesn't drive you and me to a deep low. It actually should take us to the height of worship, that the God we worship is the king of reversal. And so chapter 31, it's not an Ichabod moment. It's not a, the glory left the building moment. It's actually a moment where we see the glory of the God we should worship who is the king. Let me, let me show it to you. We read in our call to worship, it was a long call to worship, but it was important to do it. Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. Do you remember what she prayed? You can even just look at it. We said it this morning. She starts out this book thanking the Lord of hosts for the reversal he's done in her life, but she does not let it be just about her life. In her prayer, she says, my king is going to reverse everything. She says things like, the Lord kills and brings to life. He he takes down to Sheol and raises up. He'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, but he'll cut off the wicked in their darkness. It's a book that's been about reversal going both ways. You know, I think if Hannah were with us today, and we said, hey, how shall we understand chapter 31? She would say, I told you so. I told you the wicked will be cut off. I told you that not by might shall a man prevail. I told you God's going to raise up a king that's about the reversal of wickedness. And this picture is a story of that reversal. Actually, let me show you the positive about the glorious reversal. Where is Saul buried at the end of this chapter? Under the tamarisk tree. Do you know what else has happened at that tamarisk tree in this book? Do you remember? This is where he was installed as king. But then, in the most wicked of all scenes in chapter 22, this is where Saul destroyed the priests of Nob. This is where Saul wickedly murdered God's people, wives and children. He proved to be the Antichrist that had rejected the Lord. And so call it poetic justice, if you would. Call it whatever you want. It ends for you at the tamarisk tree, Saul. And your bones will see corruption. See, this book is about God's faithfulness because reversal goes both ways. He will exalt the lowly like Hannah, but he will bring down those who, by their own strength, pridefully reject him interestingly, the end of 1 Samuel is the beginning of David's reign. Now, AJ and I, Bill, we're all going to podcast the the book of 2 Samuel starting sometime this summer. So we'll keep going in a story, not through Sunday morning preaching. So I hope you track with that. But do you know how David responds in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel to this whole thing? It's amazing. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is going to grieve Saul's death. He's going to say, everyone lament with me. The mighty have fallen. Remember, David would never put out his hand against the Lord's anointed. He was waiting on God to do that. So when God does do that, David now says, oh, I mean, of course he's grieving for Jonathan. But here's what we don't see. We don't see harsh vindication and pompous taunting by David. There's no arrogant, I told you so to the people. You're idiots. You followed Saul and I'm going to make you pay. Because I only had 600 men and their families, and the rest of you were duped by the idiot. He took everything from you, and now you're going to pay. That's not what we see in the Bible. Instead, we see a king who grieves the sad extent of God's faithful justice. Does that not sound a little bit like somebody else? Who grieved the sad extent of God's faithful justice? Doesn't it remind you a little bit about Jesus, the Lord's anointed? I mean, we know that he wept outside of Lazarus' tomb because of what death does, knowing he was about to resurrect him. But in a world of sin and death, there's death. And Jesus wept over it. But how about even on the cross, does Jesus not with a posture of humility and grief say to his father, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. This book is supposed to propel us right past David to the Lord's Christ. And when we start to go there as gospel-centered Christians, do you see a little bit of the parallels here in chapter 31 to another death? Did Jesus not die on a hill all alone with his own people running away from him? And here it is in chapter 31. Saul deserved for it to happen. He'd been rejected by God. Jesus was righteous and altogether different. But why did he die in the first place? The rejection of God because God put our sin on him. Jesus would suffer the most brutal low. He had the accumulated sins of all of his people on him. Colossians tells us it was our sin nailed to the tree with him. Unlike Saul, it wasn't a death he deserved, but it was a death the Father demanded of him. Why? Because our king is a king of reversal. And he knew what was required to reverse our sin... To make us receivable in his sight. And so, so that one day God could look at his people in the gospel and say, I told you so. I told you that I would raise up a people for myself. That's a promise he gave to Abraham. I told you I was going to send a prophet that was greater than Moses. Moses. I told you I was going to send a king who would forever sit on the throne and rule righteously and would wait till the day when all his enemies are under his feet. I told you so. My kingdom is a kingdom of reversal. As King David knew, I am merciful and gracious. I told you so. I am slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I told you so. And I don't have time to read it now. But if we turn to the very second to last page in most of our Bibles, Revelation 21, and reread that glorious scene, a depiction of no more tears, no more weeping, no more death, nothing anymore. And then after that, there's a commentary, but those who've rejected God will know the lake that burns with fire forever because God is faithful to restore those who turn to him. He's also faithful to judge those who've rejected him. And if the prophet John... Had his hand be tired like I am when I handwrite, And he said, I don't really have time to write all this down. What would he say instead? I think it's like he could look at us and say, I told you so. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. What do you think would be a three-word summary of the Lord's Supper that we rehearse every week? Oh, it's forwards I told you so I told you there's a price to pay for sin and it's death I told you I was holy I told you I was going to send a king by which you could be saved every week when we take the Lord's Supper it's our proclamation that God did what he said he would do So what is our discipleship and evangelism? But wanting to introduce the king to our friends. So even in their life, when they realize the onslaught of alternative identities that are not giving them life and it's not working and they turn and they understand the gospel because you choose to share it with them. Do you have moments and people in your life that you long for the day or you've already received the day where they looked at you and they said, I'm not sunk like I used to be. I'm not scared like I used to be. I'm, I understand I'm not a waste of space like I used to think I was. And you can look at them and say, I told you so. That's called the Holy Spirit working in you because you have a God who's the creator and the redeemer. I want to challenge you, brothers and sisters, that outside the gospel of God is our king, who's the king of earth. So every other entity we place our faith in will let us down. Every human governmental agency, every corporate or other pathway to us making money and providing for ourselves, if we put our hope in any of it, any of it, it will take from us, it will leave us empty. And the scriptures say to us collectively, I told you so. But if we will be faithful and obedient servants of the King, repentant, believing the gospel over and over, walking together with one another, never stopping worshiping our King through Christ then we are anticipating the day when we are all together and those who've been rescued throughout history are singing one song with the elders and the angels and we actually believe that God has kept his promise. And I told you so will not be anywhere close to a good enough summary of the glory we will know forever. I challenge you in your own time, read 2 Samuel Track with us in the podcast we'll do. One of the main reasons we're turning to the Gospel of Matthew starting in the fall is because I want to look at Jesus the King with you. He's the King. And His kingdom has come. It is at hand. And it will reign forever. Let me pray. Father, nourish us now by the Lord's Supper. Would we be confident in what you've accomplished in Christ? Would you forgive us for the times we reject you each and every instance when we say yes to something you've told us to avoid because we won't obey you as our king? Or we say no to the things that you've commanded us to do. We thank you that your kingdom is one of mercy for those who repent and turn to you. But Lord, would you protect us from rejecting you? Would you protect us from fear of a world that has rejected you? Would you give us zeal? to share the gospel of the King with others, and would we understand and expect the two different journeys of rejection, I mean, of reversal, excuse me, that are that are guaranteed because you're faithful, which have been on display for us in this book. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.